Well, amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I want to appreciate Pastor Jimmy for inviting me to come. I'm going to elaborate a little bit on our introduction to each other at the crusade. This is what stuck out, Pastor, is I remember after uh, we gave the invitation, you'd already told me how much prayer had been put into it, and I was, you know, when you speak in a Christian school, well, you would assume when you speak in a Christian school that you're going in and, and everybody's got it figured out. I've learned a long time ago that's far from the truth. And uh, a long time ago, as a matter of fact, when I'm doing the school assemblies and they say you've got a Christian school, I kind of light up because I know what's going to happen there. Uh, and just knowing uh, what's normal. Uh, but when a, when a pastor who is affiliated with the school, whose wife works at the school, is talking to you about how much they bathe this meeting in prayer and how great the need is, that's where the kindred spirit came together. Because most times you meet pastors and they're proud and they've got all this you know, this is the greatest school in the world. We, we get to talk about Jesus and all that's awesome and it should be that way. But to recognize the spiritual need within the, uh, within the place was amazing. And I knew right then, and this is my kind of guy because it's so different. And, uh, most of the time people just get caught up in the fact that we put a title of Christianity on the top of it and therefore it's saturated with Christ. And that's just not the case. And, uh, unfortunately that's the situation with the church today too. Amen. Uh, I want to give you a quote. Uh, that, that really, really transformed me. Uh, I was telling your pastor, I have a bad, bad memory. That's from all the bad choices I made as a young man. But I have a bad memory. I always forget names. I'm sitting here this morning. I could not re recall the name. Leonard Ravenhill. I've only read about four or five of his books. He's a great man that spoke about revival. He was kind of the, the follow of A.W. Tozer. If you've ever read A.W. Tozer, then you, you know about Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill had a great impact on on a young man named Keith Green. I don't know if you know who Keith Green is, but Keith Green changed the world in five years uh, of walking with Jesus. That's all. He walked with Jesus on this earth was five years, and uh, he changed the world in that aspect. Great ministries have spun out of Keith Green's movement uh, back there in the 80s. If you've ever heard of YWAM or Mercy Ships, or or uh, there's a worship leader that does some worship, uh, uh, Chris Tomlin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, his parents came out of that movement, and... Uh, it all happened in this little town in Van, Texas, and I do ministry there. I was telling your pastor, I do ministry, and you walk in there, and here's that you drive another one and say, oh, this is David Wilkerson's house. And you're like, what? That's David Wilkerson's house. That's Teen Challenge. I don't know if you know who David Wilkerson was. And then you get on the road, there's Mercy Ships, and then you, know, you find out there's YWAM there, and, and Tomlin is, is from just down the road in Celine, and, and all these great ministries are there, and you're like, what's the common denominator? And it turns out it's Keith Green. And, uh, and so, uh, but this great quote, uh, I'm a revivalist. I, I believe the church is in need of revival, great revival. Uh, we're going to talk about a revival this morning. Uh, but Leonard Ravenhill said, as long as we are content living without revival, we will. You see, it's not, it's not up. It, God has done what God needs to do for revival to take place. And so there's a lot of times we'll pray and we'll ask God for revival, and he's looking at us going, you're content without it. You're asking me for something that, that I've given you everything that you need to have, and yet you're content without it. And we turn to God like we're, like He's missing. It's like, God, you, you, you're, you're, you're ripping us off here, dude. Please send revival. Well, He said, I sent Jesus. What more do you need for revival? You have the Holy Spirit. What more do you need for revival? And so, I, I want to, I want to help us this morning to, to kind of flip the switch. 
and, and, and stop looking to God to bring revival. God has brought revival. And start asking yourself, how content are you without revival? And before you answer that in a, in a Christian-like way, you might want to evaluate how much it might disrupt your life to have revival. You see, when revival comes, we begin to let go of our possessions. When revival comes, we, we begin to elevate Christ and have to de-elevate other things that have been lifted up in our life. It's challenging. Um, I live in a, in a home with a lot of kids. Uh, my wife and I, we have eight kids. There's only four left. I know that's kind of a weird way to say that. Uh, if you have eight kids, you know what I'm talking about, or more. Uh, I just married off my last daughter. Uh, she's a diva. My first daughter was not a diva. This one hurt. She married my best friend's son. We've been best friends for 30 years. He happens to be my pastor. I'm the father of the bride. I get to pay for this mess. 365 of my best friends coming to eat my food. Now, I'm a smart dude. I only had three dates on the calendar. One of them was September 21st. I'm really smart. I live in Tacoa, Georgia, about 45 minutes from Athens, Georgia. September 21st is the Notre Dame game. I have two tickets to the Notre Dame game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it on this one. So I sold my tickets and made a small fortune to help pay for the wedding. And then I encouraged all my friends that had tickets to go to the game. Quietly, as things came through, and this, there's a spiritual point to this, I promise. Quietly, as things came through, as the RSVP came through, and we said, we're, we're uh, celebrating from afar. And, and many of them would put Athens down under a bar. And I would, I would go, they couldn't see me, so I would be like, yes! It worked. The reason I say that is because I, I'm as human as anybody else, and, and I want to keep my stuff. You know, as much as I love my daughter, and I love her, you just need to know I love her. She's a diva, but my wife is, and so she got it on us. And so it's just one of those things. My oldest daughter is, is more simple. She's more like me. It's like, just, just get this thing done. Dad, can we go to the barn and just do a service? And, you know, you know the donkeys, we don't have a barn, but you know what I'm saying? You know, that's, that's how she is. And, and, but my youngest one, just you know, she, she started off the conversation with a venue, and I, at the end of that conversation, I looked across the table and I said, you need to turn Pinterest off. You need to stop watching uh, whatever that dress show is on TV. And this dream needs to die. <laughs> now, the reason is, is because as a father, you want to bless, you want to help. And, but there's a struggle that goes on with, you know, one, you want to be sane. You don't want to be crazy. But I, I, I want to keep my stuff. I, I really, that's, that's who I am. And, and, and really, if you be honest, we're all like that. We're good gatherers. We, we like to keep our stuff. And, and a lot of times, stuff gets in the way of the celebration. You know, the wedding was, the wedding was amazing, by the way. Absolutely amazing. And it was so fun to sit in that room and see my friends and everybody enjoy I honestly, Thursday, I flipped the switch, and I said, I'm going to stop worrying. My wife had already taken the checkbook, so it didn't matter anyway. <laughs> you know, 
it was amazing how many times she came to me. I told her after the, after the wedding, I said, baby, please, please just don't, like for the next six months, please, even through Christmas, please don't tell me it's only 50 bucks. I'm, I'm so tired of hearing it's only 50 bucks because I've heard it 47 times. Get your calculator out and calculate that number. But as I sat in that celebration, as I sat in that moment, a big party, it's probably the biggest thing I've ever been a part of as far as planning and paying for. And, uh, and, and there was just a peace. And the peace was I was looking around the room and seeing all these people enjoying themselves, celebrating my daughter. And it made me stop and think about the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now I'm sure the Father is going to look around the room See all the people celebrating his son. And, and I'm not minimizing. I, 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 I have a, a son who's been to, the, been to war and risked his life, so I, I know the, the fear of death of your son. I've never experienced the death of one of my sons. I'm not minimizing the death, but I, I think in that moment of celebration, in the moment of, of exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ, I think, in, I think the the memory of the cross will fade because of the joy and the results. That's at least what happened to me. Is I, I just stopped worrying about that stuff. All that stuff that consumed me and I was worried about, the just the, I, I can't do this. I can't even go to the game. I'm not a Georgia fan, by the way. I'm not really a big Notre Dame fan. I, I just like good football games. And I had box seats. You know, you don't get that too often. None of that stuff really mattered. I mean, I sat there in that wedding and thought, who wants to go to a game when you can be here? Who, you can see all this. You can see the joy on people's faces, the smiles, fellowship taking place. It's amazing. It was really amazing. And I think sometimes if we'll just learn to flip the switch and let the stuff just take its place in our life, way over, way over there, kind of out of the way, and enjoy the presence of God, revival will come. Revival will come. Isaiah tells us about revival, his own personal revival. Uh, as I open, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, I want you to understand the, the context. I, Isaiah is, is a prophet. Uh, many scholars will call him the Old Testament Paul. Uh, he gave us many, many predictions and prophecies of Christ that all came true. Uh, we find Jesus constantly quoting him, Paul constantly quoting him. And the reason was is because Isaiah was in a critical point. He was a prophet in a critical point in the time of Judah, the time of Israel, the, time, the times as they were, they were back and forth with God, revival and then cold-heartedness towards God. Revival, cold-heartedness. And, and this was about to come due. The dividends were about to come due for those choices, the lifestyle. God was about to turn them, take them to a new level of understanding who He was. And, and isn't it so that, that God so many times reminds us of His power, gives us opportunity to, to, to come to Him and, and, and repent and, and to get things right, but most of the time we hold out and we end up paying a dear price, a price higher than we want to pay, which makes us want him more. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a valley or ever gone through things in your life, and maybe it's not from your choices, it's the choices of someone else. But as a follower of Jesus, it always brings us to a place of clinging to God more desperately. And, and that's where the, the, the folks of Judah and, and, the, and the nation of Israel were headed. Paul, or uh, Paul, Isaiah gives us a great story. This is the story he's going to share with us is Paul's equivalent to the road to Damascus. This is Isaiah's moment. This is his Damascus road moment when, when he sees the Lord. And so it's powerful and, and, and it's, it's something we can learn from. And I believe it's the key to revival. I believe it's the key to introduction to the Lord. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. He covered the feet, his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, and, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs and from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And he gives the message to send. So Isaiah helps us in our understanding of who Christ is and, and, the, and the road to Christ, the, 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 the way to, to meet the King, the, what it looks like, what it feels like. Uh, it's his testimony, and he's sharing this with us. I, I have, I'm going to give you my brief testimony, because last night I gave it all, and it takes a long time. But basically, I, I grew up in a home where my mom was Baptist, my dad was Catholic. I was raised confused. I... I, I, I I took confirmation and had first communion in the Catholic Church. I, I've sat in boxes in the Catholic Church and confessed to a priest my sins. I've been through all of that. I, I went to church. I can remember Easter uh, before my 15th birthday. We were getting in the car, and, and, and the older folks in there, you remember Easter back then. You know, you'd get the dress up, uh, tie and all that. I hate ties. I can't stand wearing ties and because uh, I'm fat. And uh, so... We put the ties on. My mom would put tie on me, and I just, you know, I hated it. And, and I have a jacket on, and I'm big, and so I'm sweating all over the place. And and then the pictures come, you know. And we didn't have iPhones back then. It was more of the crank, snap, crank, snap. You know what I'm talking about. The older folks, the young people are going, what? You know, that's that's how it was. And then we gathered around for prayer, praying that when mom took that that black box with a yellow wrapper on it to the to the drugstore, that it would come back, the film would be developed properly, and we would not have to do this again. And that was just the way it was. You couldn't look at it and, you know, check it out. No, you erase that one. That's not, that's not social media worthy. You know, we didn't do all that. But it was that day, and, and I remember getting in the car after that experience and kind of frustrated, and, you know, we didn't go to church regularly. We just went every Christmas and every Easter. Sometimes we would miss Christmas. We never missed Easter. Never. 
and, and we would alternate. And I remember asking my mom, am I going to the church or I'm going to stand up, sit down and kneel today, all day? Or am I going where the fat guy's going to yell at me? And she said, you're going where the fat guy's going to yell at you. We're going to the Baptist church. And so I can say that because I am one. I'm not going to yell today, but, but that's, that's where we went that day. That was my idea of church. And so I, I got saved when I was 24 years old. I grew up in a very Christian culture, and all my Christian friends, I'm just going to keep this short, all my Christian friends tried to send me to hell because they did everything I did. And uh, they would just say, you know, they would just say, they would fly under the Christian flag and, oh, you know, I, I believed I was a Christian because they acted just like I acted. They just went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. At the age of 24, after a long day of drinking, watching football, actually, well, I'm not a Notre Dame fan, by the way, but I was watching Notre Dame and Michigan State. Yeah, I like good football. And so uh, it was September 21st, 1991. I'd passed out watching that game. When I woke up, there was a dude on the TV named Billy Graham. And uh, he said, if I wanted to have peace with God, to pray with him, and I did. And uh, God invaded my life radically. And I'll share a little bit more about that in a minute. But it was just one of those, it was one of those, that's my experience. And, and uh, I didn't have any theological background. Uh, I didn't have full understanding of all the intricacies of Christianity. I just knew I wanted peace with God, and it was offered, and I took it, and uh, he changed my life. And so uh, I hope today that it's that simple for you, that you understand that uh, that's, that's how he works. And so Isaiah is giving us that moment. I want you to see what Isaiah does. Isaiah tells us, he gives us a time. Now, I, listen, I'm not one of those people that says you need to know your date, and you need to understand, uh, you know, have it put it on a calendar and celebrate it every year. I know my date because the Internet tells me what day... Notre Dame and Michigan State played in 1991. It's just that simple. I know what time I got saved because I know where it was in the, in the, in the presentation on TV. It, it wasn't during the sermon, and it wasn't when he said, come forward. I woke up after he did that. They were already coming forward, and, and all I saw was when Billy Graham turns to the TV screen and talks to the people at home. He said, there's those of you at home right now, and when he said that, I literally thought, he knows where I'm at. And then he said, you may be in a bar, you may be in a hotel room, you may be in your living room. And I'm like, he does know where I'm at. But that's when he said, if you want to have peace with God. And so I, I know where it was. And so I know the time. And, and so I don't go around quoting times. I don't want to freak people out like, dude, you're weird, man. That's like 28 years ago and you know that. But I, I just know it because of those things, just deduction. But here's one thing I can tell you. If I didn't know the date and I didn't know the time, I will never, never forget what happened. It was so impactful in my life that I'll never forget what happened. You see, what happened is in, in, in that day, I, as, 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 as Isaiah is saying here, he gives us, he says, in the year of the king Uzziah, that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He had an encounter with Jesus that changed him. His encounter is going to tell us that he saw Jesus sitting on a throne. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. I didn't have that experience. That's not what I had. I, I, but I had an experience that was like that in that I realized I wasn't God. That there was a God who loved me and had a plan for me, but I had to, it, my life had to change in order to understand that. So Isaiah is saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the room, filled the temple. Let, let me just break this down for us. The, the King Uzziah 
was a, was a pretty good king. He was, he, he was after God's heart. The problem is he got arrogant in the end of his, his administration, his kingship. And he took the role of a priest. And so he received leprosy. He, he, got, he got punished. He, got, he, he received leprosy. And, and we have a problem with that in our thinking in the world, in, in, in today's world, that, that God would actually do that. But it happened. God gave him leprosy because he took the role of a priest. And he didn't. He was out of, his, he was out of order. We struggle with this. We want to start talking about covenant and how, but listen, this happened and this is with God. This is, this is his DNA. How, it's how it's presented to us. We have to understand that. So Uzziah, King Uzziah goes out of office, leaves this world isolated. So the country, the, the nation of Judah was kind of in, in, in struggle. Things were, were beginning to, to fall apart because you, your, your king is isolated. He couldn't come out in front of the people and, 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 and he was isolated. And so it was memorable for a man like Isaiah when that king died. And you'll, you'll notice as you read through Isaiah, he's always referencing kings. So he served closely with kings. And so it was in this year... Maybe the country was falling apart. I don't know what the situation was, but he gives us the time, and then he talks about what he saw. It says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. I want you to understand what this looks like. It's beyond just a king. Because he said he's high and lifted up. He knew who kings were. He rubbed shoulders with kings. The way he, What he's trying to communicate here is, is this is like no other king I've ever seen before. He was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the room. He is beginning to show us what the presence of God looked like to him. He's having this vision, this encounter, and this, 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 this moment in his life, and it's life-changing. So he's, he's in this moment, and, and he understands the, the presence of the Lord. He, he's, he's communicating what the experience that he had with the presence of the Lord. I don't know about your experience. I'm not saying that everything has to look like this or even be like mine. But I'm here to tell you, the reason that I live the way I live, I promise, the way I live, the way I live, it's not perfect. I struggle every time I step up on a platform. I have to tell God, I'm so unworthy to do this, Lord. Because I'm just a dude and I struggle just like everybody else. And Isaiah was just a man. And he had his own struggles. But in this encounter, he's giving us the elevation, the, the, the preeminence, the power, all these things of God that he's going to show us is in contrast to who he is. And we live in a world today where we don't want to think about the judgment of God. We, we don't want to think about the holiness of God. We just want to kind of get along with God. And so in order to get along with God, we bring him down to our level. And we worship a God that we can see eye to eye with. He's my friend. He's my brother. It's all good. And Isaiah's description defies that. And so in this, in this moment, as Isaiah is, is, is giving us, we need to understand, and I shared this last night, I'm going to share it for the rest of my life. We need to understand, Jesus does not share his throne. 
There's so many people in the world and in the church today that want to come to Jesus and want to make a deal. Hey, I will give you my life, but you can I just keep this? Can I have this? Or, or we allow things in our life, maybe not bad things, maybe they're good things, but we allow them to elevate over Christ. Sometimes our family. I, I, I'm just going to say this because I, I, I want you to understand. We adopted two young children. The last two kids in my in my family are, are 12 and 9. We adopted them when they were 9 and 6. I wish you could have been in the room and seen their eyes when I said what I said. And I, I think maybe I said it too early. Maybe should have gotten a little more relationship going on. But it was about six months in, and, and it was one of those big family gatherings. And, and somebody was talking about end times, and we were having that conversation at, at our table. And uh, two of my older sons are in seminary, and, and so we, you know, we all get together. We, we bore the rest of the family with all of our theological conversation. And so uh, somewhere in there, I just restated the statement. We were talking about persecution. I have a pretty strong uh, uh, belief that we are going to suffer great persecution in this country. Uh, and I think it's not far off. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just we're going to find out who the real believers are. <laughs> it's going to be real. And, and, and I, I've always shared with my kids these two guys are brand new spectators at the table now. That you know, we got wives and grandchildren now. I mean, this is a big old table, and we're sitting there, and, and lots of food. And uh, I look at my my kids, and I say, "You guys just always remember. You just need to remember that if they put a gun to my head in front of you and say, deny Jesus or die, you're going to watch your daddy die." If they put a gun to your head. And tell me to deny Jesus or you're going to die. You just need to understand you're going to die right then. Now some of you in this room think that's cruel. But I'm not going to elevate my children above Jesus Christ. Some of you just said to yourself, I would never do that. You just want to bring Jesus down. As much, you, listen, there's no one in this room that loves their children more than I do. I just love Jesus more. And, and here, I have peace in my heart. And my children know Christ, not because of me and not because of that, you know, they were selected, elected, or whatever. I'm not in that world, but because I've seen them repent and receive Christ as Lord, even my youngest. We, we were standing at the ark. I don't know if you've ever been there. You need to go if you've not. We're standing at the door. Every time we go there, I always share that only the people inside the door were saved. Everybody else outside received the judgment of God. We went on upstairs and they showed a video. And it was, We'd already seen one video. They showed one that's more you know, cartoonish, animated. And my little boy, seven years old, Eli, right there just started weeping, and he looked at me and said, Daddy, I don't think I'm inside the ark. I, and I said, well, actually, you are right now, but... <laughs> but we prayed right there, and he received Christ. I have confidence. So as a father, it's my job to lead them to understand, guys, I love you. But man, I love Jesus so much more. That's what Isaiah is trying to help us to see. In this moment, that Jesus is high and lifted up. Look, look, look what Jesus said in, 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 in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, when the religious people were beginning to chastise him. 
These are folks that were seen in the, in the common day as good people, religious people. They, they had it figured out. They were the spiritual people in the community. And this is what Jesus said to them. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I'm using the children illustration because it's probably the most dear and, 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 and endeared relationship you have other than your spouse. But can I just tell you that if you've got your children exalted above Christ, Jesus says that's an abomination. That messes our world all up. But that happens because we want to bring them down to our level. And we would think, no, there's no way Jesus would ever ask me to do that. You realize that's going on around the world all the time today. It's not happening in America right now. But it's happening everywhere. And who are we to say that'll never happen here? Why do we think that we won't go through what the rest of the world who loves Jesus is going through? It's reality. And so we need to be, be prepared and have Jesus high on the throne. You're not going to place Jesus on a throne one day that you've not placed him on the throne the day before. In other words, you're not going to do something. You're not going to, you're not going to show how much you love Jesus in that moment if you've not loved Jesus that way all along. You've got to now make peace with that, that he's the most preeminent in our lives. He's Lord over everything, everything. The second thing we see is, as he, as he talks about this, is he shows us this, this, the, the way the angels worship them. Now think about this. There's these angels, and they're standing, that says there's two wings covering the eyes, two wings covering the feet, and with the other two wings, they're flying. And they're, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they repeat this back and forth. And they never get tired of doing that. Like, they, they're not bored with worshiping God. And in church today, if we sing more than five songs, if we go through and sing a few more verses than normal, even though they repeat, man, I wish you'd hurry up. You kidding me? Man, there's a great game on TV today. The race is about to start. We get all worried about it. And stop to think about this. In a week's time, on the normal Christian church calendar and time schedule, we corporately worship God maybe 30 minutes a week. Compare that to your FaceTime time or your Facebook time. Compare that to whatever. 30 minutes. Now, I'm not saying you don't do it at home. and I'm just saying. We get bored with it. And here's these angels. They understand the power. They understand the authority. They, they understand what they're saying and who they're saying it to. And I think sometimes in songs, I, I know, because I listen to the words and I'm thinking, do you really believe that? Do you read the words and think about the words? And do you evaluate yourself according to what you just said to God? I've come under conviction. Like, I, I don't do that, God. I'm sorry. This whole week, I've not done that. 
I just think sometimes we get bored with it and we go through the motions. We just sing a song about saying we're sorry. We go through, and I think just, we, I, I, sometimes I don't think it affects us. These angels are, are in this position of worship, humility, covering their feet and their face, saying, I'm unworthy to be in this place. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it never stops. For all eternity, it never stops. Like, that's their role. And I don't think they get bored. I think it's such emotion, such an emotion, such a movement in their life to be in that close to Jesus. Maybe that's just the problem. We're really not that close to Jesus. We want to present that we're close to Jesus. We want others to think we're close to Jesus. Especially in the gathering of the church. This is one of the most moral things we can do is be Christian. So we want to present that. But is that where your heart is? Remember what Ravenhill said. If we're content to live without revival, we will. And I think the reason we're not seeing revival is because we've got a lot of people content without it. Content without the experience of God on a daily basis. I, I don't know how often you're in the Word or how much you pray. But man, I'm telling you, being in the presence of God is life-changing. And for Isaiah, it was radically life-changing. Then he says, in the foundations, this is the power, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called the house and the house was filled with smoke. And in that moment of realizing the power of God, the preeminence of God, something happened. He now realizes his position with God. And it's not good. It's good that he realizes it, but the position itself is not good. He says, Woe unto me. Can I just ask you a question? When is the last time you honestly said to God, Woe unto me. God, I'm so out of place. I'm so out of position. can't stand it anymore. That's not something someone who's content would say. Isaiah makes a confession. He says, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't believe the only sin he had was things that came out of his mouth, but what he's saying is he's, he's bringing attention to what God is bringing conviction to. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. He's not blaming the people. He's saying, I want it to change. And if it's going to change, it has to start right here. You see, there's a lot of people in the church, they want it to change. They just want it to start over there across the room. And they'll start finding people that they deem less spiritual than them and like, oh, it would be great if they would have revival. 
That's not how God does it. God doesn't bring conviction upon you for someone else. He brings conviction upon you for you. As a matter of fact, the greatest struggle we have in the church is we are far more willing to deal with other people's sin than we are dealing with our own sin. When is the last time you had a woe is me moment with God? You recognize your depravity. You got beyond the moral hard core on the outside that you present to the world. And you recognized how immoral you are on the inside. There's way too many people in the day in the church today that believe morality is going to save you. Hell will be full of moral people that made good choices, that raised their children right, but never dealt with their immorality on the inside. Never dealt with the sin that put Christ on the cross. In this moment, Isaiah is in a moment with God that is so holy and is so pure that everything about him that's wrong is revealed. And how good is God? That one of the angels goes to the altar and takes a hot coal and brings it and puts it on his lips. Now that sounds pretty graphically harsh to me. Like, I, I barbecue all the time and I've never had the thrill to just look down and say, I wonder what that would feel like to take the tongs right here and just go, never thought about that. But that's the picture we're given. That's the description we're given. He says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Powerful. The last thing I want you to see is when we understand the power, the preeminence, and our position properly, then we find God's purpose. I, I work backwards all the time. With my kids, something's going wrong, I start and just work backwards and get all the way back to the, hey, here's the source of your problem. My 12-year-old, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not saying this in an ugly way. You just need to understand. He, he was raised in a foster home. And, and, and he lived in five foster homes and an orphanage. His mother sold him for drugs. And it's been heart-wrenching. And I'm just going to be honest with you. The dude has a problem with lying. And the reason he has a problem with lying is because he had to lie his whole life to survive. And now he's in a home where that's not a good thing. Lying just is not accepted in our house. I had to talk to him one day and say, dude, when, how many times have you gotten punished? We, we actually spank in our home. I don't know if you do that. If you think I'm a bad person, come see me after. I'll lay holy hands on I'm just kidding. I'm do that. But I, after, after I spanked him one night for lying, I, I said, dude, how many times have you ever gotten spanked for, for being bad, for doing something wrong. And he said a bunch. I said, no, son. The only times you've ever gotten spanked is when you've lied about what you've done wrong. And it's like a light went off. Man, the, the younger one, he's got it figured out. Like, and, and James, he doesn't have it figured out yet because he knows, he doesn't realize Eli's coming in the room in a minute. I'm going to call Eli in because they do everything together. And I'm going to say, Eli, what happened? He's going he's gonna to just vomit the truth on me. Like, it's just going to come out. And James is going to be sitting there going, looking at him like, dude, man, why'd you do that? You know? But he's figured it out. I ain't getting a whooping 
If I just tell the truth, yes, we've won the battle. James struggles. And the reason is James was the protector. He was always protecting the kid. So I, listen, I get it. I, psychologically, I get it. We're just we're dealing with it. We're not going to not deal with it because he's got to tell the truth. And I think so often in the church, we just don't want to be truthful about who we are. We want to, we want to, we, we just want to budge a little. It's just, man, I, I'm going to make it look a little better. Now be honest with where you're at with God. Be honest. Because in that, those moments of honesty, and we have these encounters, the woe is me moment with God, guess what happens? John 10, 27 takes place in our life. Because what happens next is Isaiah's standing there in this moment, and he's, he's just heard, your sins are atoned for. And then it says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, I am. Here I am. Send me. And he said, go. And he gave him the message to take. Here's, here's, here's the picture. Revival, when revival happens, the channel between you and God gets cleared up. When a, when a, when a new believer comes into the presence of God, he'll hear voice, the voice of God. It'll be the same voice that said, come unto me, all you who are weary. And that familiar voice, will, will they'll recognize it. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 27 said, my sheep hear my voice. And, and what he's indicating there is there's other voices. And by the way, there are other voices. All kinds of voices. But Isaiah hears the voice of God because he has now the heart of God. And when God says, whom, we gonna, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the presence of God, understanding the power of God and understanding his position with God, says, me, I'll go. Send me, me, me. I want to go. Please, send me. When is the last time you've seen that in church? Altars full of people saying, God, send me. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll, I'll, I'll go in your power. I'll go for you, God. Now we come. We sing some songs we might believe might be living. We listen to a sermon. And then we go home. That doesn't look like the encounter that Paul and Isaiah talked about. Can I just tell you, when I got saved, I'm on my face before God. I'm going to wrap with this. I'm on my face before God. I didn't know I was supposed to be on my face. Billy Graham didn't say, hey, get down on your face. I just got on my face before God. I'd never been in church and seen anybody on their face before God. I didn't know that. I was just on my face before God. And I was just praying with this dude on TV. I didn't know who Billy Graham was. I had been to a crusade when I was 21 years old. I started running from God there. But I didn't know about the personality on the stage. So I don't, it's not, this dude means nothing to me. He's just the messenger. And as I'm praying, I'm just asking for peace. I'm like just waving the white flag. God, I give up. I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out. All of a sudden, something invaded me. 
something that was not of this world, had never happened before, invaded me. And the first thing I recognized was I started to care. Life started to matter. I'm talking about in the moment. And it's because the Holy Spirit was invading me. I didn't understand that. He was filling me. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 11, watch this. If you're in Christ, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will come dwell in you and give life to your mortal body. That's what Paul said. So, so here's what happened. Easter, first Easter, Jesus is dead on the tomb. Dead in the tomb, on the, on the stone. Dead. Bodies ripped apart. No blood. Decaying. He's dead. The Holy Spirit comes into the tomb. Jesus, it's time. Up from the grave He arose. He walked out of the tomb with the Spirit of God dwelling inside of Him. September 21st, 1991. I'm on my face in my living room. No one there. Steve, it's time. When I stood up, I was a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things became new. I, I Listen, I, listen. let me help you out. I didn't go to church the next day. Next day was Sunday. Because no church ever knocked on my door. I didn't know there was a church around that cared about me. But I knew I was different. I went to where I always went. This is going to mess you up now. Just buckle up. Hang on. I went to the bar on Sunday night. That's where all my friends were. I sat down. Bartender's coming down the bar with my drink in his hand. I looked at him and said, I'm not drinking again. I'm not drinking tonight. Dude across the bar, I didn't like him. Beat him up a couple times in the bar. He said, man, if you're out of money, I'll buy you a drink. I said, I didn't say I was out of money. I said, I'm not drinking tonight. It got tense. Everybody's like, uh-oh. Dude's sitting here for three years. Three years sitting right there. We're friends. I admired him, respected him, businessman, but we never got more than this deep. He puts his arm around me, squeezes my shoulders, and then everything all right. I said, it's all good. He said, What's going on? I paused, and in my mind, I was thinking, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't saying this. He said, No, what's going on? So, man, some dude on TV last night said, if I want to have peace with God, to pray with him. He didn't even hesitate. He looked at me and said, what'd you do? I prayed, man. He says to me, it sounds like you got saved. I looked at him and said, saved from what? I don't speak that language. For the next 12 days, including that day, that night he gave me scripture. He asked me if I had a Bible. The next 12 days, I was discipled there under deep conviction. Deep conviction. And I walked out on the 12th night after finding out his story that he was a deacon in the church. He'd gone through divorce and the pastor, because it was his ex-wife's family's church, told him he needed to go. 
and he'd never gone back to church since. God used me in his life to remind him who he was, and God used him in my life to teach me who he was. He's living for the Lord. An amazing story of what God's doing in his life right now. He's been on mission trips all over the world. Amazing. He gives more money to the kingdom than he ever gave, ever thought about giving before. It's awesome. I'm walking out of the bar on the 12th night after he shared the story because I'm under great conviction that we're sitting in a bar with Bibles open. And as I walk out of the bar, the bartender comes to the end of the bar and says, Payson, he yells it out, Payson, what's wrong with you? And I turned around and I said something that, that I'd never thought of before in my entire life. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through me. He said, what's wrong with you? You've not touched your drink. And I looked back and I said, I guess I don't need it anymore. And as I said it, I thought, I've never had that thought in my life. Where did that come from? And I went to the Waffle House with my friend. And we talked more about Jesus. And that's where we met from that point forward. And I never went back into the bar to drink. I go back in the bars all the time now and tell people about Jesus. I'm not afraid. I'm careful. But I believe in the darkness is where the light needs to be the most. And I'm going in. You better, before you go in, you better make sure you're going in for the right reasons and you're going in full of Jesus and you're on mission for Jesus. And by the way, he knows the difference. He knows your heart. I said all that to say this, radically transformed, radically changed by the power of God. His, pre his, his presence, His preeminence, His power, and His purpose that's revival.